Good morning, this is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Friday the 3rd of April and we are still in lockdown. Throughout yesterday, the political scandal over testing in Britain continued to blow up. Matt Hancock emerged from his isolation one day early to suffer a lengthy press conference in which he admitted that the government had not got everything right, though he made that admission in the passive voice, as if mistakes had simply happened, not actually made by anybody. He outlined his goal of doing 100,000 tests a day by the end of April, although Boris Johnson did, a few weeks ago, promise 250,000 a day. Why should we believe you? Hancock also outlined a plan to find a way out of lockdown by effectively issuing people who have had COVID-19 a kind of coronavirus passport, allowing them to leave the house and go back to work because they're very likely to be fine. There are scientific questions here about the efficacy of the testing, uh, about the antibody test itself, but there are political questions as well. Such issuance looks to me like it would blast a massive hole through people's willingness to be locked down, especially if they make the call that they're likely to survive it. And then you get the nightmare rebound scenario of a sudden spike in infections. But that kind of internal passport and restrictions on movement allow us to step back and think a little about the way this crisis is panning out in terms of rights across Britain and Europe. Okay, so something that has become very clear over the past few days when looking at the way the right is treating the pandemic is that it's increasingly making noises about, well, who's worth what? They are dying. Let them die. And that's significant because I think it's likely to be part of some under-the-table government briefing as this thing goes on. But it even provoked a big BBC piece yesterday saying essentially, meh, lots of these people would have died at some point soon anyway. Well, sure, to steal a phrase from Keynes, in the long run, we're all dead. But the point of the right, really barbarically, although it's rarely put quite this bluntly, is, is it worth shutting down the economy to save the lives of sick and old people? Won't you please let your nan die so McDonald's can reopen? We'll see a lot of this, I think, and we should say a few things. And one is that this argument is just false. Lots of people vulnerable to the infection aren't in their sunset years. And can it really be right to write people off just because they're older? Its victims, anyway, are far from in a single age bracket, and these can be brutal, miserable deaths suffered very often alone. Will it occasion enormous economic and political change to save the lives, including many vulnerable lives? Yes, it probably will, and it should. Perhaps if you're making those kind of trade-offs, something really does urgently need changing. But I think this is also representative of a kind of three-way pull between basic civil freedoms, public health measures and the economy. And I think that that three-way pull is going to be the basic conflict of the next few months. It's a classic game of exclusion. These three essential things, but in a situation where any two cancel out the other. And though the tension has so far been essentially between the economy and health, that third factor, what we're free to do, is going to start pressing pretty soon. In fact, you might say, it's already here. There's been a a story circulating a bit in the British press about a woman brought to magistrate's court and fined under the new police coronavirus powers, fined £660, for failing to stop and account for herself while travelling on the railways. There's just one problem. The law under which she was fined doesn't quite seem to exist, with one QC advising her very strongly to appeal. And that's emblematic of a lot of instances of police really acting beyond their powers over the past week or so, sometimes inventing something that's not in the rules, possibly possibly because they've heard in a ministerial speech that, well, that's what we'd really like to happen. But the police's powers are those given by law, no less, but certainly no more, not whatever a minister wants. 
Now, you might say, well, you don't trust the police and this is surely just teething troubles. Well, sure, I don't trust the police. And sure, powers take time to bed in, though there are certainly some police who use any justification, however flimsy. But there's a serious point here as well. The powers that the police get are often made by codification in law of something that has already become police practice. Effectively, what officers do from their own discretion then becomes the basis for codifying that power in law. That's the root, for instance, of the modern arrest power. So I think one should be careful of police going beyond their powers. And those powers and the odd regulations underlying them grew out of the UK's Emergency Coronavirus Act. Now, we discussed these last week. And as I say, having emergency powers in a genuine emergency is fine. I do get a little nervous when I hear the extent of them, but that's, you know, it's genuinely an emergency. They have significant duration, significant extent, these powers, in addition to closing ports. There are also those increased police powers of detention, loosened rules around what one has to do to qualify for certain investigatory powers, storage of dead bodies, retention of data by police, the the postponement of elections, and the power of sanction and scrutiny by Parliament, while not completely absent, is pretty thin. Some questions like this, which are questions really about the role of the state, about civil liberties, who should have what power and how it should be used, those really, really fundamental questions, they're constitutional questions about the fundamentals of democracy, especially in an emergency. And how far you think they matter at the moment depends on how far you think things will go back to the way they used to be. Uh, I'm not going to get into the thorny field of theorists of states of emergency, some of whom have embarrassed themselves recently, but perhaps that is one for a longer show. It matters, though, I think, because across Europe, entire populations have been put with varying degrees of intensity, varying degrees of strictness, under a kind of house arrest. But humanity, as Karl Marx put it in a very late piece of writing, is a gregarious animal. Such confinement has its toll and its consequences. It can't be replaced with a Zoom call or more time spent on Twitter. The psychic effect it has on its population is likely to be very significant. Such an experiment in the mass mass destruction of sociality has not really ever been conducted. So that maybe is something worth dwelling on, but it's not really where I want to go today. My point is that you may agree with the powers of restriction placed on movement and you may believe them to be medically necessary, scientifically necessary, and even the state is right to enforce them. I do. Certainly, I never expected myself to be cheering being put under house arrest by a Boris Johnson government, but here I am. Other than professional trolls and idiots or disciples of Ayn Rand, which amount to pretty much the same thing, few people disagree. And if you think the measures are basically a temporary emergency phenomenon, just something you go through and then zip, gone, everything's back to normal, then you've got nothing really to worry about. And in turn, Whether you think that's likely, well, that's going to depend on whether you think the recession which follows will be shaped like a V, a rapid bounce back, like a capital V, or a U or an L, capital L, so down and flat. But even on the most optimistic construction, you'd come out the other side with a state massively beefed up, profoundly changed, and perhaps with some powers used in the emergency which just become normal phenomena and perhaps especially calls to beef up medical surveillance powers or medically tiered citizenship. This is one of the things that tradition, the the tradition that thinks about states of emergency and states of exception tell us. The way in which the exception can sometimes 
not always, sometimes, become the basic and permanent rule of the way that we live. It's one reason to look closely at them and keep your eyes sharp. And I should be clear what I'm saying here. I'm sure the government in the UK wants to roll back many of these restrictions very quickly, not least because many of them are bad for economic life. What I'm saying is that in practice, even in the best scenarios, powers tend to stick around. And the way governments deal with emergency periods can tell us a bit, perhaps, about what they'll do as as they emerge into a changed world after everything's done. So I think it's worth having a lightning zip around the emergency laws being put into place around Europe. And we could easily go into too much detail here, so I'll try to avoid that. Like I say, lightning zip. But let's have a look at four examples. The first is in Germany, where restrictions were brought in at the level of the federal states and were a bit of a patchwork. For instance, Berlin's curfew law was initially going to be a contact ban and then it wasn't. Lower Saxony sort of oscillates between the two. Now, obviously, Germany is constitutionally, politically and legally very, very wary of emergency powers. So I think it's striking that the reform to the infection prevention, uh, infection protection law, sorry, passed by the Bundestag has raised the eyebrows of some of the country's constitutional experts near to the back of their head. Some of them say that the way the law and powers came about should be worrying because they came into effect really without much in the way of adequate legal basis. And, you know, most people are untroubled because they agree it was fundamentally the right thing to do. So what happened is more important than how it happened. Uh, They are, of course, obliged to lift the state of emergency once the crisis is passed. But constitutional scholars get alarmed, not that the period will end... We all know that's going to happen, but that the power to declare such states remains. And one scholar compares its significance to the Prussian constitutional conflict of 1850. Huge, huge, huge conflict which fundamentally shaped the law right down to the time of the Weimar Republic. So there's been lots of serious commentary about this, including uh, about the new powers the health minister has, including varying the law by issuing his own exceptions to it. Now, By contrast, France has the state of emergency deeply rooted in its politics. It had, uh, as I think many of you will know, an extended state of emergency from 2015 to 2017 in the wake of the terrorist attacks there, and which effectively instituted a kind of double state for many of its Muslim citizens. And and I'll link uh, a tremendous piece from the LRB on that in the notes to this show. But this one, the uh, état d'urgence sanitaire, the sanitary state of emergency, is a modified form of the standard one and it's already in place for a couple of months. It can be renewed by Parliament indefinitely. It's worth mentioning, you know, how powerful uh, in, in the French political system, how powerful the French president is, especially when his party controls the Assemblée Nationale. Uh, amendments pushing for parliamentary control have been rejected. It only needs to be, you know, Parliament only needs to be informed. There's very little scrutiny involved, really. There is a debate scheduled to happen in the Senate in a year. It's really worth mentioning that one of the reasons the old state of emergency, the 2015 to 2017 one, was in place for so long was that the government didn't like to appear weak. So it's important to remember none of these measures are ever without political concerns. And perhaps it's worth mentioning too that under delegated powers, the government has already uh, pushed changes to labour law, diminishing the power of workers' representatives. It's hard to see how that really relates to the pandemic, but never let a serious crisis go to waste. So I think those two are really, really important because it shows there are different approaches to emergency politics, even in the heart of Europe. You know, those two countries which are at the foundation of what eventually became the European Union. 
The developments to me that are really worrying are in two of Europe's more delinquent states. Now, the first, of course, is Hungary. And you'll have heard that Viktor Orban has given himself effectively the power to rule by decree, decree there. The, the new emergency law would give Orban a free reign to govern just directly by decree without the constraint of the laws that already exist. You know, he can suspend the enforcement of certain laws, depart from regulations, implement, you know, new measures uh, by, by decree. Uh, the law is not very specific, this this new law that's been passed allowing him to rule this way, so that pretty much it looks like any law could be suspended or overridden for as long as the state of emergency continues. It's important to say that if Parliament were to say, oh, actually, we think this guy's going too far, because of the way that the law was passed, it's called a cardinal law it would it required two-thirds to vote to pass it also requires two-thirds vote to repeal so whether that would you know be be something that that parliament could do is not clear less reported here has been the creation of two laws uh, one ostensibly to deal with false facts and one to deal with people who interfere with the measures the government will take now both of those are punishable by up to five years in prison you might think those sound fine, but they're both so widely drawn that the first law can very easily draw in much of the press under its provisions about alarming or agitating the public. And Orban's track record on press freedom is appalling. The second is also incredibly widely drawn and so widely drawn that it can be easily used against those who question the increasing use of the military in everyday life in Hungary. And it's entirely up to the government to decide what the definition of obstructing their programme is. So why all this? Many reasons, but one might be that the crisis is likely to hit Hungary's hospitals very, very badly as they're poorly funded and overstretched already. Does that mean civil unrest is likely? Perhaps not. It's a very difficult thing to do in Hungary, a very solitary thing to do, unfortunately, sometimes. But perhaps it's certainly a possibility. Now, last of the four is Poland, which is usually the kissing cousin of Hungary in many things, but not in this. The populist ultra-right-wing Law and Justice Party have introduced a lot of the restrictions that we see elsewhere, like social distancing, bans on gatherings, and so on. But they've done so without declaring a state of emergency. Provisions for a state of emergency exist in, in the Polish constitution, but they've declared instead a state of epidemic risk instead. Why? Because if they declared a state of emergency, they'd have to delay the elections that are planned for May. So now only the incumbent, Andrzej Duda, can campaign, as his opponents are seriously hampered by the restrictions. A one-man campaign and probably very low turnout elections at that. Illegal, you might think? Surely those elections would be invalid anyway. Well, until 2018, the election results would have been, would have gone to be, be declared valid by the Supreme Court. But since then, it goes before a special new chamber stuffed with judges appointed by the government. So should he win, which he is, I should say at this point, it looks very, very likely that he will, it's hard to see them doing anything other than rubber stamping it. But if he loses, well, you can call it invalid because of the pandemic. It's a neat little solution. But what do we learn from all this? Now, the dreary constitutionalist take might be about all of these kind of different forms of emergency laws is that they're all implementing the same powers, some in a liberal way, others in a very illiberal and quite alarming way. But I think it's also worth stating two things. And one is, obviously, how clearly so many are using the emergency for obvious political advantage. It's a point to really, really underline here as we get 
talk about how everything is justified by science and justified by uh, you know medical necessity. Politics doesn't go away. The second, though, is maybe a bit deeper than that, uh, perhaps rather boring take. Uh, one way you might look at the way in which all these laws are being made is to say that the state is back. And not only as the British left sometimes likes to think of it, the big, cuddly, benevolent state, which cares for you and it gives you what you need. It might be that. But it's also the state in its guise as the possessor of the monopoly on legitimate force. Combined with the state-led economic intervention that almost all of these countries are taking and will continue to have to take, then this suggests to me a politics with a greatly strengthened state machine in both left and right forms, is the thing that will emerge on the other side of this crisis. So perhaps the British left, especially, is going to have to find itself in pretty unfamiliar waters, questions of the state and the constitution far deeper and far more probing than the minor constitutional tantrum we just went through for the past few years over our membership of a European trading bloc. All right, headlines today include the right-wing press snuggling back into the bosom of the Tory party as they go back to sleep. The new Nightingale Hospital in the Excel Centre opens today. Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York, has instructed everyone to wear masks in public, and that's almost certain to ignite debates about mask wearing here. And it is Jeremy Corbyn's last day as leader of the Labour Party today. He's used it to warn off his successor, inevitably, I think, Keir Starmer, from any government of national unity, saying the opposition's duty is to oppose. And Starmer will begin his reshuffle over the weekend, and eyes are basically on what he's going to do with the Shadow Chancellor's role. It will, of course, tell us a lot about what kind of leader he intends to be in a time where the Conservatives are intervening massively in the economy to return to the swivel-eyed, harder-than-the-right, pro-austerity, pro-welfare-cuts line pioneered by Rachel Reeves would be, to my mind, a form of reckless and entirely avoidable political suicide. So don't put it past him. Okay, that's it for today and indeed for this week. My thanks this week to all the Navarra Media team, especially Craig Gent and Gary McQuiggan, who've listened to me complain rather more than they should have to. My thanks also to 65 Days of Static, who do the music for this show, and a general plea to help out them and any musicians you actually like, because this is a difficult time. Uh, My thanks as well to all of my guests and external contributors this week. Now, last thing for this week, please try to have a weekend of some kind. Don't sit absorbing the corona drip feed on social media if you can possibly, possibly avoid it. Personally, I'm going to take some time out to work on my calligraphy. What about you? All right. Talk to me on james at navaramedia.com. Otherwise, stay safe, stay home, wash your hands and don't be a prick. That's it. This is The Burner. I will see you on Monday. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.